leaders. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm really excited to be interviewing Lance Wilkinson. He's going to be talking about leading a support organization, and he's also going to talk a little bit about personal finances. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Lance. Thank you very much. Can you take a couple of minutes to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm not sure how deep you want me to go, so please stop me if I'm rambling. Lance Wilkinson, hello. How are you? Uh, I've worked in tech for give or take 15 years officially, and then various endeavors younger in my younger years, um, pretty much starting where a lot of us started in break fix computer repair back in the earlier 2000s, at least many of us elder millennials. Worked my way up from there, climbing telephone poles for a while, which was interesting and terrifying. Found my way over to restaurant IT, which was a bit hard to break away from, both at a break fix role at Chipotle and about five years or so at a tech startup called Toast, although public company now, so I guess they're no longer a startup. Various roles in there mostly revolving around networking, computer networking, not people networking, both at the IC and, and management level. And then uh, from Toast, I made my way over to Dutchie, kind of Toast 2.0, as a lot of people joked. From there, I ended up in a manager network en- manager of network engineering role at Electric Supply Company. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned about leadership? Yeah, definitely. It is that you have to challenge people and trust them to take that challenge head on, I would say. My first official management role, I would say, uh, I took on a team of about six people. Obviously, they're going to have a myriad of backgrounds and of things that they hold of importance to themselves, right? I had one fellow who didn't want to do anything else, just wanted to put his head down and grind and do the thing and be the best at it. And that's a, I, I kind of got out of his way. And you have to learn to to trust people in that they know what they're best at. They know what they are, what they're working towards and make sure that you are removing obstacles to allow them to do that. And, you know, I've had folks on the opposite end of the spectrum who were, to use the, the rock star or superstar analogy from uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, if you've read it, excellent book on leadership. Some people are rock stars and they just want to do what they do and that's it. And some people want to constantly achieve more and more and more. And that's great. Make sure that they have the challenge to do that and to satiate that desire within themselves. I do love that analogy, and I had forgotten that I got it from Radical Candor. There are parts of Radical Candor that I don't like or or maybe feel didn't age well, but in in general, I do like that book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of good, very basic principles in there about about leadership as a whole. And um, it was an excellent read. I think I I read it probably six months into that role. Again, my first management-level role. And it really helped me to understand those those principles of let people do what they're great at and find their strengths and allow them to focus on it and remove things that are in their way. What is leading a support and implementation team? Do you feel like there are obvious differences from other leadership roles? Yeah, I would say uh, they're both very, very metric driven. Which is something that, you know, personally, I'm not going to say I'm struggling with, but I'm challenged by in my new role, which is more of an engineering focus role and more of a, a focus on accomplishment and a project, or, you know, a sprint kind of mentality. Implementation and support are both very, very metric driven, right? There's a lot of numbers around the role, and that is used as a measure, uh, as KPIs, as to how that person is performing and how they're doing in regards to the standards that are being set and the rest of the team. 
There is also a lot of overlap, especially when you're talking about technical support and technical implementation roles. You know, I have found that a lot of folks, I'm not going to say it's a hard rule or a set in stone rule, but a lot of folks that came from support into implementation were very, very set up for success because they had been at that level of, I'll put it this way, no one calls support just to say, hey guys, everything's great. Keep doing what you're doing. Everyone calls support for a neg- uh, inertly or, or innately negative reason, right? And being able to take those situations and not only not only see them through to resolution, but making sure the customer knows that, hey, I'm the person to see them through to resolution. I will, I will fix your problem. I will get done what you need to get done is a great, great stepping stone into an implementation role where you have that uh, more neutral ground in establishing a relationship with a customer that you are going to not fix their problem, but make sure they don't have any problems that need to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Cool. I, I know from your profile that beyond leadership, you're also really passionate about personal finances. Mm-hmm. Do you see a, a connection? Like, how do you incorporate your financial interest into leadership? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think that uh, I think a lot of things in life beyond these two specific topics here that we're discussing require a lot of motivation to get started, but discipline to keep going. Right. And to make sure that you are recognizing challenges and acting accordingly. I always use the the analogy of working out because it's something that, let's be honest, I'm going to say 9.9 people out of 10 struggle with to do consistently, myself included. I have started my weight loss journey many times. I have yet to finish it. But you know, motivation to do the thing, whether it's, you know, whether it's being fiscally responsible, whether it is taking on a new, a new headcount on a team or solving a new technical challenge is fantastic. It's what gets us out of bed. It doesn't last forever. It's fleeting. It's temporary. And discipline is really, uh, really what it takes. You know, I found myself, uh, in the habit sometimes of, of just browsing Amazon. We all do it. I hate to give them money, but man, is it convenient. And, you know, adding things to the cart. I'm like, oh, I'd love to buy that. I'd love to buy that. And then just letting them sit there for a while, fiddling on it a bit. And then you come back to it in a day or two and you're like, I don't need that. I don't need to buy, you know, a thousand dollar telescope or something. And I find that very similarly with leadership too. And you have to recognize when you're doing things, when you're working for work's sake, when you're doing things in a, in a rot, not mediocre. What's the word I'm looking for? In a, in a repetitive and, and non-ingenuitive way. And understand how to how to break out of those cycles. Do you feel like as a leader that it's kind of part of your responsibility to teach about finances as well? Like when you're coaching and mentoring, do you feel like you know because you have that passion and you because you have that interest and you you have that experience, mm-hmm. do you incorporate it in your management roles or do you keep it separate? I suss it out a bit, depending on the person, depending on the relationship that you build. You know, uh, I, I have managed folks who are all business, don't want anything to do with you basically outside of the nine to five or, or whatever grind. And that's perfectly fine. Everyone has their boundaries. Um, but I have definitely, uh, on the in the relationships uh, in a working environment that I've established that have been a lot more personable, I have definitely offered advice as one key thing that comes up in, or pops into my head is uh, a fellow at Toast who was one of the first, I'm going to say under 20 people that were hired. And when I say he was drowning in stock and equity options, I mean it. 
I was very jealous. At the same time, he took a huge risk. He joined a pre-seed startup company and he was awesome at his job. And when rumors started flowing and, hey, maybe the company is going to go public and, and, hey, this is actually going to be worth something, what we've all worked towards. Knowing what I know, I, I, I kind of set an aside during a one-on-one and I'm like, hey, I'll call him John. But, hey, John, you know, I just want to let you know, like, if you have any questions about what to do with you know, roughly $2 million coming into, coming into your life all of a sudden in your early 30s, like, let me know. I'm not going to tell you how to spend it, but I'm going to tell you what to watch out for and what to not spend it on and not just piss it all away because it's very tempting to do, you know, when you see those commas in the bank, you start to see those commas in the bank account. And, you know, I gave him some, some advice on, on the taxes part of it. Not that I'm an expert and I very much so disclaim that, Hey, this is, you know, what you should be kind of working towards. You're in a very unique position. You're, you're, you're young. You're in your early thirties. You're coming into a sizable amount of money that is absolutely life-changing. Either, even if it's not, Hey, I'm going to retire. You know, I told them, is it enough to retire in America? You know, it, it depends on how you live. Is it enough to disappear to Southeast Asia? Absolutely. And that's up to you <laughs> or the Caribbean. I'd go with the Caribbean, but that's up to you what you want to do. And I've had similar conversations with other folks. And I think that the, the tech startup environment very much facilitates that as well, because it is something on everyone's mind in a tech startup, right? Hey, is this going to be worth something? This isn't necessarily a leadership question. I mean, it's definitely something that people think about when they start a job is like several things that come in the offer package. There mm-hmm. can be equity. There can There's the base pay. There can be a bonus. There can be a 401k match. There can be, there's vacation. And then there's benefits like commuter benefits if you're in a hybrid or on-site role. And then there can also be there's also insurance benefits. And, you know, sometimes for me, family health is super important. And like, I totally want to factor in family health when I'm, I'm considering a thing. Cause like I have to pay for family health. And, uh, if, if they're only going to cover like the personal part and I have to cover out of pocket, all of the family part, then I have to like, just, okay, well, the base comp is basically that much less. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, how would you counsel people about thinking about that? Because even for experienced leaders that are thinking about new roles, that can be a daunting process of figuring out, okay, well, there's this small base salary, but then there's this giant quarterly bonus, or there's a 401k match. Like, you know, what do you look at in uh, a package and does it, does it depend on age and you know, what do you, what's your advice for people that are looking at, at potentially accepting a new role? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Great question. I would bucket it into tangible money and, and intangible money. Tangible money being what is going to show up in your bank account biweekly or, or, or twice a month, depending on, you know, pay cycles are weird nowadays. What is actually going to show up predictably in your bank account? Very similar to, to, you know, personally, I, off the rails a little bit. I had oil heat a long time ago, and it was the worst because you fill it four times a year, 200, 300 gallons of oil, 600, you know, four to $600 a pop, and then never again. And it was extremely unpredictable. You didn't know how much you'd need. You didn't know what the current price was. It was, you couldn't, you couldn't really budget for it. You just had to set aside some money for it throughout the year. Whereas having electric or gas heat, you know what that's going to cost you. Every time the heat runs, it's going to be X amount of money. I like predictability. I think humans like predictability. 
as much as it can be beneficial to push yourself outside that comfort zone in some areas of life, money generally isn't one of them, in my opinion. So I would say that the base pay is really is really the key element there. Is that base enough to for you to live the life that you have designed, that you have you you know developed over the years, in make sure that you can a make ends meet and b hopefully save on top of that because that is something that oh god I think it's like forty. It's high 40s to, to mid 50s percentage of Americans simply just don't save or, or save less than 5% of their income. And that's terrifying to me. And then you start to factor in, like you said, the healthcare, which is obviously a huge. We can go very deep down that rabbit hole in America, but we won't. And the healthcare is what it is, and it's unfortunately a necessity. And like you said, I think you put it very, very eloquently that when you are thinking, hey, I'm going to have to pay. $700 a month or something out of pocket for the additional healthcare beyond the, my individual coverage that I need. That is absolutely how I would look at it. It's simply that $700 less of that biweekly pay or what have you per month, you know, $350 per check that I am going to have to just basically consider gone because it is a necessity. And then age, you also mentioned, is definitely a factor. You know, I'm on the cusp of 40. It feels bad to say it. I was talking to a friend earlier about it. And, you know, 30 years ago, Jurassic Park came out. I think it was more than that. But little things to make us feel old. It's, it's great. But that is a factor. And that's something that I personally factor into to decisions in, in terms of employment and, and healthcare because it's directly linked to employment in America. You have to consider that. What are my predictable healthcare costs? If you go you know, to your primary care twice a year for a checkup and maybe you need a pack once a year or something, chances are you're not going to really put as much stock in that as if you've had multiple issues. And personally, like I get MRIs every two or three years for some spine stuff. Mm. I factor that in. I've actually even thought too, like, Hey, I'm going to go on vacation in Mexico next year. Maybe I should just get an MRI for 200 bucks while I'm down there because the MRI machine is the same. But the other variable there, especially in the, in the tech or, or startup world is equity. And I have learned, I have looked at it through rose colored glasses. I have been chained down by the golden handcuffs, as they say. And ultimately at the end of the day, if you could predict what's going to happen in the market, whether a company's stock is going to go up or down, whether a company is going to go public and successfully or not, then you wouldn't have to worry about predicting the market. And if you can, please let me know off uh, offline because I'd love to talk. Ultimately, that is a lovely perk, but you should not consider it to be anything but concrete if the company is not public. Cool. Who's your favorite leader to have worked for and why? Ooh. Big question. You want names? You have to say names publicly. It's um, a good thing, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you don't have to, but maybe they'll hear the podcast. So I'll go on a couple different levels. I'll go on the the C suite, the executive level, and I will say Chris Comparado from Toast. He was the CEO when I started in mid twenty sixteen. He is still the CEO, and he is honestly the most one of the most down to earth people I have ever met. When you're when you're first meeting a C-suite level executive, and I think this changes as you get older over time and become more comfortable with, with dealing with people of different levels of authority like that. But you're like, oh man, this guy's the CEO. I, I, you know, I better you know, cross my T's, dot my I's, etc. Instantly, he just personifies, he's just a guy. I, I've run into him at the gym at five, you know, five, six in the morning when people were actually going into the office years and years ago. And, you know, morning, Chris, how are you doing? And he's like, I think I'm dying because he's dripping sweat. And, you know, he just went for a five mile run on a treadmill or what have you. But he does an excellent job of removing those, those natural barriers of like, this guy's the CEO because he's not, he's just a guy. He is extremely approachable. 
And I think that the culture that Toast has built really, really goes to show that. And they are just a very genuine company. And a lot of it, if you look at their job listings, they have all these bread puns in, in the job descriptions. And it seems kind of kitschy and like, oh, really? Like that, it's, it's, almost, it's almost cringy in a way, but it actually is legitimate. And they do mean it. And it's a rarity in the world I have found. On a more direct, direct level, I would say, going with another Chris, Chris Ridings, who I worked with both at Toast and Dutchie. He is a, a customer success leader. I think he's currently a VP of customer success at Dutch. can't recall, but he, again, he, he has that approachability, that humanity to him. And he very, very clearly will say, this doesn't work or we're doing this wrong. Like, here's why, here's why I think if you think different, tell me he's, he's not early nineties sitcom vice president or anything like that in the three button suit. Again, he's just a guy and he really puts out there that you can challenge me. I want you to challenge me if you think that I'm wrong. I'm not the end-all be-all. We are here to, to work together. And it's you're working with him, you're not working for him. And I think that's really what it boils down to of no one wants a boss, no one wants a manager that makes you feel like crap about yourself. Makes you feel like I have to do what they say. To a degree, sure. But it's more of a collaborative and really my ethos I guess I don't think that's a word I use very often, but of managing people is I am not successful in my role unless I can make sure that you're successful in yours. Whatever that means, even if it's work, if you're having difficulties with other teams at work or you're having difficulties with customers or you need help because you're buried in credit card debt, whatever it is, if you're not successful, then I have worked it. And I think that everyone I've worked with, the people I've named and the, and the many, many that I haven't over the years, oh God, over the decades, I can say, have really personified that. And I think that's what matters. Cool. You were talking about approachability earlier. Do you feel like there are lessons that you took about approachability that maybe you can share with us or that you try to apply in, or is it something that you don't feel is, is really for everybody? Everyone has different styles. Mm -hmm. Everyone has different styles. I'm brought back to the four-hour work week. Have you read that, Tim Ferriss? A little outdated, a little high level, and, and maybe some of it's a bit gimmicky, but he, he writes brilliantly, and he described a boss that he had at one point who introduced himself during a meeting. All hands, company all hands, just joined the company. He goes, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm here to build a sales team. And he sat down. And that's exactly, according to Tim Ferriss, what he did. He did not make friends with anyone. He was on a Mr. whatever, Mr. last name, Mr. Wilkinson basis with everyone. And that was it. No one liked him, but he did a fantastic job. And there is something to be said about that. However, I think that as younger generations are entering the workforce, as um, the, the morals and principles that they uphold are, are now more and more actively a, a variable that, that as a people manager, you have to navigate. And I'm saying that in a good way. I agree with them. I don't agree with the sit, stand up, say half a sentence and sit down. I think that what I'm finding is more and more often people are taking that more approachable approach. I have had times probably more so when I was a supervisor and not in an actual manager role where I probably played my hands too close to my chest and didn't let people in on what I was doing or what I was planning or thinking. And it creates dissonance. At the very least, it creates dissonance and and a lack of harmony. And 
a team, there's no I in team, right? I know there's an M and an E, but there's no I in team. And without that level of transparency and, and the word you use approachability, I don't think, I think that the chances of success are become more and more rare the more that goes. Do you think that it can ever go a little bit too far? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you had, it, it was interesting what you were saying about generational differences. And do you feel like there's lessons that you've learned from the, the different generations that you've worked with? Like, have you worked with a lot of generations or yeah. or have you, have you not? <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. I have, you know, worked with, I would say, baby boomer to, to Gen Z at this point. And I think I'm relatively lucky in saying that a lot of the the older generations that I have worked with, the, the more the baby boomers that I have worked with, have been, simply put, awesome people. Nine, nine out of ten of them or so. The few that haven't been, generationally aside, just the few that haven't been, I find often, if they're in, envi- in an environment where they are the odd ones out, they simply do not last. For one reason or another, generally, I think a lot of times they leave on their own volition. I have examples of the opposite of that. But I, I have experienced as well you know, a manager, especially during my younger professional career, that those lines were too soft and too blurry. And, you know, I, I specifically recall he sent me a text and obviously his name will be redacted or withheld, but he sent me a text one night saying, Hey, are you going to be at, at such and such a location? It was 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going there tomorrow. He goes, okay, I'll meet you there. Bring your laptop. And that was kind of code for like, Hey, you're getting fired. And I didn't sleep. I simply did not sleep that night. And finally, I think at like 3.30 or 4.30 in the morning, I texted him. And I'm like, are you going to fire me in the morning? Because I need to know. You just need to be a man and tell me. You know, be an adult and let's have an adult relationship and, and don't don't string me around. And he goes, what are you talking about? He didn't even realize that he had, he had crossed the line like that. And we're still friends. We talk to this day. We see each other once every year or three, whenever life allows. And he's, he, he's a great guy. He was too young to be a manager. He was slightly older, I'd say six, eight, six or eight years older than me, but he was simply too young to manage people. I think that really what it has to do with is your capacity, your ability to remove yourself as the, the main character in a situation and realize that, hey, I'm not the most important person here. I'm not the one that's going to say how it's going to be. You know, I'm not the director of NASA or the president or anything. I'm just a guy or a person managing a team that needs to, needs to do the thing. Is there anything you want to plug? Mm. I've mentioned a few books. Honestly, I think that, you know, the the small um, shortcomings that it has, I think Radical Candor is a, is a great read for anyone in, in or entering into a management or leadership role. Honestly, Kim Scott did a great job of laying out some framework as to how to approach a lot of different subjects and conversations that come up and, and situations. Like you said, it's not perfect, but what is, you know, yeah. what is perfect? In terms of, of finances, I am personally, I'll, I'll plug myself. I, I hate doing it, uh, but I suppose I should get used to it. I'm starting to put together a newsletter about financial well-being. I've learned that there is absolutely no way to say, hey, let's talk about your money without it making it seem like I'm going to try to like swindle you out of something. I don't even like managing my own money. I don't want to manage anyone else's. I just want to pass along information because I have been, I'm going to say, at rock bottom, not maybe maybe not comparatively speaking to some folks' situation, but 
I've been in a real, real crappy place financially and, and really turned it around. And I just kind of want to help others do the same. LanceWilkinson.com. You can go there. You can sign up. Uh, I send them out every Wednesday. I will be starting to send them out every Wednesday. I would love to have you join and read along. Awesome. And I will include a link in the show notes. Beautiful. Thank you. Who do you feel is a person that I should absolutely interview? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a former coworker of mine, Izzy Sheard. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He uh, he is really building up an uh, audience on LinkedIn in terms of you know, offering tips as to how to grow their job search, how to grow their career, how to search for jobs, you know, little shortcuts and, and hacks. I think he called it. You know, I teach people hacks to save hours every week in their job searches is his tagline. But he's an awesome guy, extremely down to earth and, and approachable again. You know, he really simplifies the process and has a lot of great insight into what your hiring managers and leaders are looking for when they have open headcount, when they're looking for key talent. And he would really be a great person to speak to about that, especially in this, in, in this economy, as silly as it sounds, but in this job market right now with all the layoffs and stuff, it is uh, you know, more applicable than ever to many people, many people's lives for better or worse. He has some fantastic content out there. Awesome. Anything else we should cover before we close? Uh, I think I am good. Let me see. We kind of, I mean, I wrote a couple notes to myself, but we've, we've really cross pollinated a lot in the questions that you've asked. Oh, just thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Lance. This has been yeah. great. Likewise, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Practical Leadership Cast. Please subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Become part of the conversation by joining our Discord server. The opening music is Like a Prism by Maya Jisama. The closing song is Something About You by Marilyn Ford. Until next time, goodbye. There's something, there's something about